Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, ladies in back, for giving us words to sing and follow along with. Well, once again, good morning, everyone. What a pleasure it is to be together as a church. There is a really a more precious place to be than together as God's people. Really, no. So it is a privilege to be with you this morning. We're continuing our trek through the book of Galatians. Um, today we're gonna round out chapter one. Just a quick review of where we've been and how we've gotten here. Um, the, f- the first message that I gave about Galatians was about a gospel of grace that causes disciples of Jesus Christ to be free. Right? That's what the gospel does. It sets us free from sin, free from the punishment of death, and to live freely in a manner, in a manner worthy of God. And so we are free because of what Christ has done. And the second message last week, um, we talked about how there's only one gospel. Right? We can go to a lot of different places in our culture and hear different messages, right? But there's only one gospel message. That's the point Paul was making in the middle part of Galatians 1. And part of what he was fighting against is that you can't add to the gospel. Only Jesus saves. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. It's a free gift from God. The moment you add to the gospel is the moment you lose the gospel. That was kind of last week, and Paul defended his apostleship as well. And this week, we will read how Paul uses his testimony, right? If um, you grew up in the church, you might hear that word a lot. What's your testimony? Well, Paul has one, and he uses his testimony to show the power of the gospel to save. And today's message, like I said, rounds out the first chapter in Galatians. So if you've got your Bible, you can open it up to again to Galatians 1. We'll start in verse 11. We'll take it all the way to verse 24. Verse 11 all the way to verse 24. If you don't have your Bible, no problem. The uh, passage will be on the screen behind me. Now, this is God's word for us this morning. It's for Sean Powers. It's for you. It's for us. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, And tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born. And who called me by his grace. Was pleased to reveal his son to me. In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus, verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who remained there, and I remained there with him for 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. 
And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the uh, greatest theologians since the Apostle Paul is Augustine. You might have heard of St. Augustine or Augustine. Different people pronounce it in different ways. For my money, he's one of the greatest theologians. Um, Augustine lived in the 4th and 5th centuries, and his road to being a great theologian was filled with years of rebellion and seeking after the lusts of this world. For years, if you know Augustine's biography, he writes about it in his book called Confessions. Um, for years, Augustine filled his life with mistresses, concubines, and he was committed to Greek paganism. In particular, Augustine was involved in a sect called Minichianism. You don't need to know much about it other than to say this, one of the farthest things from Christianity. I don't have time to give you all the details of Augustine's life before being saved by the grace of the gospel. But it is safe to say that if there was someone you expected never to be a Christian, if you were living at that time, right, you wouldn't expect it to be a Augustine. Not him. His lifestyle and his theology were contrary to the Christian life. He was running hard away from God. However, in 386 AD, at the age of 31, Augustine's eyes crossed with Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, which says this, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And this is what clinched it. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and no, make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. At that moment, Augustine read that, in, the, in God's providence, at that moment, the light of the gospel was shed upon the heart of Augustine. Augustine had what we call a, a Damascus Road experience. A Damascus Road experience. Here's, here, here's why it's called a Damascus Road experience. Kind of like, kind of coin it like that. Here, here's part of the story of Paul's conversion. Right? We read a little bit in Galatians, but now let's, let's get some of the backdrop of what we read in Galatians and what we'll continue to tease out this morning. It's from the book of Acts. But Saul, that is Paul's former name, Saul of Tarsus, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus. That's where he was going. He was on a road toward Damascus. And he got these letters so that he that he, when he found anyone belonging to the way, that is Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, 
And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So like the Apostle Paul, Augustine's conversion appears to be dramatic. It's like, whoa, nobody saw that coming. But genuine. He lived a life that no good parent would want for their child. I don't want my kids growing up like the Apostle Paul before he was saved. (laughs) I don't want my kids growing up like Augustine before he was saved. Yet, the grace and mercy of God found them. I'm going to give you another example of what I call kind of an Emmaus road experience. We got this Damascus road experience. Here's, here's what I call an Emmaus road experience. Less dramatic from our perspective, but genuinely uh, real and equally genuine. At a small church in rural Iowa, there was a 10-year-old girl. She grew up in a Christian home, rarely missed church. She had friends in the church. However, one Sunday, something happened. She was listening to the pastor preach the gospel. It all began to click. She's not able to explain in great detail what was happening, but she knew something was changing inside of her. She was starting to see that she was not a Christian because she grew up in a Christian home. What she needed more than Christian parents in a church was a relationship with Jesus. She needed to be rescued by Jesus. In an instant, God in his mercy broke in and saved her. In a moment, the Holy Spirit revealed to her her great need to repent of sin and to trust in Jesus with her life. Now, the girl has become a woman who is living a simple life, but it's a life that brings glory to God. Again, I call this kind of an Emmaus Road experience because of what we read in Luke 24. In Luke 24, we read about two men who were walking on the road toward a town called Emmaus. So while on their journey, we got Jesus joining them, but amazingly, they did not initially recognize Jesus. And then to show these two men the truth of the gospel, Jesus opened up the scriptures. It's like every week, this little girl just goes to church, hearing the scriptures preached. That's what Jesus does on the road to Emmaus to these two men. Here's just a small part of it. Again, this is kind of the backdrop to what we're going to get into with Galatians 1. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, this is Jesus talking to these two men, he interpreted to them all in the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then a few verses later, we read what happened to their hearts as Jesus was celebrating communion with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I'm making a contrast here. There's no fanfare. No story of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But this Emmaus Road experience is genuine. 
It should also be stated that the 10-year-old girl needed to be rescued by Jesus just as much as Augustine. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God are in need of rescue. Both of these biographical sketches, we got two from the scriptures and we got two from real life. These biographical sketches reveal the love of God poured out on undeserving sinners so that God would be glorified. And there are stories in this room, right? Some are like Augustine. Others relate to the 10-year-old girl. We got everything in between, right? We got stories, testimonies. They are stories of redemption that are a cause for celebration because of God's grace and mercy. If you don't have a story, perhaps God wants to break into your heart this morning and reveal the light of the gospel. So in today's passage, all that kind of as a backdrop, we read about another testimony of God's grace. I've already mentioned it from Acts with the Apostle Paul. And Paul gives us the details here in Galatians. And so one of my hopes is that as we look at the testimony of Paul, we will make sense of God's work in our own testimony. We will see how God is glorified in and through our lives. Now, something to note here. Testimonies can be different. But the storyline is the same. God is the origin of the gospel. God is the origin of your faith. Martin Luther said it this way. The knowledge of Christ and of faith is not a human work, but utterly a divine gift. The gospel is a divine gift that can only be given by God. So there will not be many other times when we will, when we will bump into a passage in the New Testament epistles, the letters, where we will read of, in some detail of an individual's biography, which includes their conversion. By nature of how the New Testament epistles and letters are written, they're more prescriptive, they, meaning they tell us about theology and how to live the Christian life. Um, which is what we call kind of Christian ethics. Here at the end of Galatians 1, Paul takes time to tell us about his past, his conversion, and how he responds to the gospel of grace. Before Paul unleashes theology in Galatians 3 and 4, which we will get to, and then before he talks about how to live out our theology in Galatians 5 and 6, Paul defends once again his apostleship, which is what we talked about last week, by sharing his testimony in the power of God to save him, a wretched sinner. He, he tells us the origin of his testimony. So because of the nature of this passage, I thought it'd be good to look at this from a kind of a biographical lens. That's why I gave those stories. So here, here are the three questions we're going to see and want to answer this morning. Number one, what does Paul tell us about his past? Let's look at those details. Uh, two, what about the miraculous moment when God converted him on the road to, Dama on to Damascus? And then three, how did Paul respond from his radical conversion? It is these questions that we want to answer. And we'll see the sovereign hand of God over the life of Paul. And hopefully you'll see the sovereign hand of God over your own life too. So Paul's past. We read that before Paul was saved by the grace of God, he was fighting against the grace of God. In verses 13 and 14, Paul gives us significant insight into his past. Paul is straightforward by telling us that he had a former life in Judaism, verse 13. Paul isn't just saying he was like some practicing Jew, he just kind of showed up to church or showed up to synagogue, right? 
Paul says he intentionally sought education and training within a Jewish context. We know from Acts 5 that Paul was a pupil of Gamaliel, a Pharisee and a leader in the Jewish world. In the Jewish world, a Pharisee was the most strict and rigid branch of Judaism. Paul was a rising star. He was the top of his class. He would have been like the ninth grader taking AP courses with the 12th graders, right? And the next thing for him would have been like Ivy League school. That's the Apostle Paul. What this means is that his teachers and his peers would have highly respected him. He would have been very knowledgeable of the Old Testament and of the Jewish traditions. He even tells us he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers in verse 14 signifying his clear intentions to continue to cultivate his Jewish identity and Jewish faith. So here's the bottom line with Paul. If a person was not going to become a Christian, it was Paul. Said the same thing about Augustine. He was a Jew through and through. And as far as he was concerned, he was not going to change. His path in life was bright. Everything a person would want for his time and context was in the palm of his hand. Paul was moving toward prosperity and respect. And Paul's zeal for the Jewish, Jewish faith was so significant that when another faith confronted his traditions, he was willing to be violent. In our context, we hear people use words like radical and radicalized. We could use those words to describe Paul's Jewish life. One pastor described Paul as a terrorist who was turned into an evangelist. After the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Jews perceived Christians to be an affront to their Jewish faith. Paul took action. He said, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. The first century Jewish historian, um, this guy named Josephus, he uses the word destroy to describe the burning of villages and towns. And now we read in verse 13 that Paul was destroying the church of God. Paul further confesses in Philippians, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul simply thought his persecution of the church was right in the eyes of God. So I want you to understand Paul's hatred for Christians. It sounds weird to say that and to hear that. The great apostle Paul, he wasn't indifferent though. He had an opinion and he didn't think well of Christ's followers. His enthusiasm for his traditions coupled with his zeal to persecute made him a known man by the Christian community for all the wrong reasons. Now here's a bit of recorded history of Paul's life before God saved him. Kind of driving this home. We understand like the grace of the gospel. Let's really understand who Paul was and what God did to him. As for Saul, approved of his, uh, this as this execution, um, referring to Stephen in the previous chapter. And there arose in that 
great day, persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the persecution resulted in fleeing town. Everyone in Waukee or the side of Des Moines were just leaving town. There's persecution going on. The apostles did stay. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So what would you think if a person came to your house, dragged you to to prison because of your faith in Jesus, right? Make no mistake about it. Paul was persecuting the church because he thought Jesus Christ was an imposter. That is, until Jesus revealed himself to Paul. I want to provide an important parenthetical thought about Paul's conversion before looking further at our passage. Paul's transformation is dramatic and unique. I mean, the dude wrote how many New Testament books, right? He's a unique guy. He's got a unique story. God used him in amazing ways. But it might be tempting to look at Paul's conversion and wonder, why why isn't my testimony that dramatic, right? Sometimes we can ask that question when we hear other people's testimonies. What about me? So please hear this for me. This is why I share the testimony of the 10-year-old girl at the beginning. The same miracle that happened in Paul's heart occurred in perhaps you. The same grace of God that saved Paul saved you. And by God's grace, you might have been spared from the life Paul had before being saved. God may have spared you. I say this to my wife all the time. I don't want my kids growing up like I did. Really mean that. I want them to grow up like my wife. Therefore, we can look at Paul's conversion and your conversion and praise God for his grace. So that's my parenthetical thought that's complete. Let's look at how Paul describes his conversion in today's passage. In verse 12, Paul says, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This might be reminiscent from last week. Verse 12 is, is continuing on from verse 11. Paul continues to say that the gospel he received is right from Jesus. He says this because there were false teachers in Galatia saying that Paul's gospel was wrong. Paul needed to defend his apostolic status, and he does so by what we read now, giving his testimony. Paul's conversion is a beautiful story of redemption, not because of his past, but because of the grace of God, the origin of his salvation, his testimony, and the message is from Jesus. That's the point Paul wants to make. It's all from God. In verse 15, once again, Paul shares what God has done to save him. Paul's going to emphasize the free grace of the gospel through the lens of his testimony. Here's that verse again. But when he, God, who set me apart, God did the setting apart here before he was born. He called me. God did the calling by his grace. It was God who was pleased to reveal his son to me, it says, in order that I might 
preach among the Gentiles. The only thing that can explain Paul's conversion is the supernatural work of God. If anyone would have been perceived as unsavable, it was Paul. But we learn from Paul that no one, no one is outside the reach of the grace of God. Let that sink in for a moment. If Redemption Hill Church desires to be a community of gospel grace, we need to get that. No one is outside of God's sovereign, saving hand. I, I gotta confess, right? I don't come from a Christian home, as many of you know. And it's easy to, th- to forget the ones who are closest to me when it comes to God's saving. Right? But that's not true. It's not true at all. No one is beyond his reach. We know from Paul's redemption and salvation and from listening to one another's testimony that no one's beyond his reach. And because of this, because this is true, we can take courage when we pray for family members and friends and neighbors, knowing that's true. We can take courage when we proclaim the gospel, knowing that it's God at work to save. It's his power that saves, not our power. remaining verses here, Paul's going to give us kind of a theology of salvation. The initiative and grace of God to save is obvious in Paul's conversion. It says in verse 15 that God set him apart before he was born. Ephesians 1, which I referenced the first week in our series on Galatians, is appropriate here, but if we get into the mind of Paul, he had several Old Testament examples in mind about being set apart. Remember the prophet Jeremiah was set apart by God to be a prophet before he was born, Jeremiah 1.5. The prophet Isaiah was called by God while he was in his mother, mother's womb, Isaiah 49. These Old Testament examples strengthen Paul's argument that he too has a unique calling to be an apostle to the Gentiles, verse 16. This calling was God's initiative. Paul was not looking for the calling. Right? It's not like you signed up for seminary and then after you get the degree, it's, you become a pastor. Paul wasn't looking for that. God set his hand upon Paul and issued the calling. And it's God's initiative. Let me say this to us. No doubt, like I said, Paul had a unique calling. Everything about Paul is unique. However, every person in this room has been has been called and saved by God, has been adopted into his spiritual family. Like a biological family, each member has gifts to offer, talents to use, roles to play. There's no such thing as a Christian who does not have something to contribute to the entire family, right? You can look at Paul and be like, whoa, I can't be that. That's not the perspective we should take. His contribution was unique 
but that doesn't make your contribution any less important to God. Another reason why Paul's conversion is entirely the hand of God is because of the grace set upon Paul. Grace, in this context, means undeserved love. To state the obvious, Paul didn't deserve God's undeserved love. We should even think Paul deserved the wrath of God and hell for the crimes he committed against God and his church. He neither deserved mercy nor asked for it, yet mercy found him and grace called him. Think about your testimony for a moment. You and me did not deserve mercy. Nor did we ask for it. Yet mercy found you. Grace called you to God. It's amazing. That's precious. A third indicator that Paul's conversion was purely the initiative of God is when Paul makes it clear that it was God who was pleased to reveal his son to Paul. It's verse 16. After conversion, without a doubt, Paul is proclaiming Jesus as God, which is the major rub with the Jews. That's what Paul was fighting against. It is this claim that distinguished Jews from Christians still to this day. If Paul wanted to make more enemies, all he needed to do is say that Jesus is the Son of God. Paul declared it in part because of his Damascus Road experience, and we know he never backed down from the claim. The claim that Jesus is God reminds me of a conversation I had with my eldest daughter, Chloe. Um, while I was still a pastor at Sovereign Grace Church in, in, in Bloomington, um, Chloe asked me an excellent question that many adults have asked me in the, uh, in the past. Uh, one night after Sharice and the girls, they kind of went to bed, you know, and I'm reading on my, on my couch, and it's like 10.30-ish at this point. All of a sudden, here comes Chloe, and I'm thinking to myself, girl, why aren't you sleeping? Um, but I could tell, like, she was thinking. And so she wanted to talk. She had questions. Earlier that day, Chloe learned that her teacher was a Jew. Chloe wanted to know if her teacher was going to heaven. That's, there were other questions, but we can sum it up with that, right? And I explained to her what I told others. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you believe in the one true God. If you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, then you don't know God. That's the bottom line. That's the brass tacks. That is part of the good news. That's the good news that saved Paul, and that's the good news that Paul was now commissioned to proclaim. God revealed that to Paul, that Jesus is the Son of God. So, to summarize verses 15 and 16, Saul of Tarsus, Paul's former name, had been a fanatical opponent of the gospel. However, it pleased God to make him a preacher of the very gospel he had, been, had so bitterly opposed. 
his uh, prenatal choice, his historical call, and the revelation of Christ in him were all the work of God. Without God, Paul was headlong into persecuting the church, and he was running toward hell and eternal separation from God. He was going quickly. Now, Paul's salvation can raise the question of why? Why Paul? Right? I've already said that it is in part because of God's good pleasure that Paul was saved, and we read that in today's text. But Paul gives another reason why he was saved. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul says this. And, and, and this last Monday, I was meeting with a few folks who helped set up Sunday. And, and I was asking, hey, let's read the text together and just give me your thoughts. And someone brought this text to my mind. Actually, I think it was Shelby. And it, it's, it, it lands, and it's right on. Why God save you? Why say Paul? Why me? There's a reason. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that. No human might boast in the presence of God. God chooses the foolish people of the world to accomplish his work so that he will be glorified. Paul was beyond foolish. He was antagonistic toward the one true God. Yet God saved him. I find great comfort knowing that God saved a rebel like Paul. God used him for his glory. I take comfort knowing that God saved many formal, former rebels in this room so that God would be glorified. Just as God's plan was at work in Paul, it is at work in this room, it's at work in your homes, places of employment, in your neighborhoods. God is always at work in his people. So we talk about Paul's past, his conversion. Now let's talk about his response. It's verses 18 and 24. Paul's response to his conversion is unique and deserves some additional attention. Here are a few facts about how Paul responded to his conversion. Consider this the Cliff Notes version of his biography. After he was saved, Paul did not immediately go to Jerusalem. This minor detail continues to make Paul's overall point, actually, from Galatians 1. The gospel that Paul received was not from a man or from men, namely the apostles who are already in Jerusalem, but his message was directly from Jesus. So he gets saved, and the natural response would be, I need to go to Jerusalem with all those guys. But he doesn't do that. Instead, Paul went to Arabia for three years. It is likely that Arabia is also known as the kingdom of Nabatea. Sounds like a Star Wars moon. The, the Nabatea kingdom included the city of Damascus, where Paul was initially headed. Some scholars speculate that Paul spent three years to study and kind of freshen up on Christianity. I don't think that's the case. I think Paul went to Arabia to evangelize. He went to go share the gospel. A man like that, his mouth just didn't get closed. He's going to go tell people. He's going to go preach. And I think that's what Paul did. I think Acts confirms that. 
Nonetheless, after three years in Arabia, Paul finally went to Jerusalem. Paul was in Jerusalem for only 15 days, which seems minuscule compared to his three years in Arabia. He was there 15 days with Peter. Uh, He calls him Cephas in today's passage, and James, the half-brother of Jesus. 15 days with Peter and James is not long enough to be trained and kind of caught up on what did you learn about Jesus as you were walking with Jesus? But it is long enough for him to create a relationship with these guys. And we can assume this is when their friendship began to build. After Paul's time in Jerusalem, he went to Syria and Sicilia to contribute to the gospel work. And it was on this missionary journey where people began to see the dramatic change in the life of Paul. He was saved, and now he's out preaching in lands where he was formerly persecuting. So, what are a few takeaways from these travel details? First, just as Paul was zealous to persecute Christians after he was saved by God's grace, he was equally zealous to ensure that the gospel he preached was the unadulterated gospel of free grace. He wasn't influenced by leaders in Jerusalem or by Greek philosophy. Paul's message was clear, and his message came directly from Christ. Second, Paul's new life was shocking to his new listeners. Could you imagine watching on the news a person destroying Christians, and then, you know, three years later, he's preaching in a church, right? Only the power of God to save can cause such a transformation. I mean, think about that. We would be so skeptical, but what removes the skepticism is the power of God to save. We can't conjure that up on our own, right? But when you see someone preaching the gospel and you see the change, you know it was God. Nobody make, he didn't make it up. As Paul was preaching and people were listening, Paul ensured, it says, he didn't get the glory, but that God received the glory. That's the last verse of Galatians 1. And they glorified God because of me. They didn't glorify Paul because of me. They didn't glorify me because of me. They glorified God because of me. Paul is making sure that everything he is doing in his ministry is for the glory of God. That's one of the things I love about following the life of Paul through his epistles and in the book of Acts. He's constantly saying, look at Jesus, not look at me. Look at Jesus. Look at what he has done in Paul's life, in your life. Look at what God has done in your life. It's remarkable. It's amazing. Paul was a fool, but he was a fool who was saved by the grace of the gospel, and now he was sold out to serve Jesus. So, by looking at Paul's testimony, have you been able to map on your own testimony? Do you have a testimony of God's grace to save you? If you do, can you see the similarities 
Here they are. You were a fool. You were rebellious. You deserved wrath and hell. But God, in his grace and mercy, broke into your cold, dead heart and has made you alive with Jesus. It is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives within you. And like Paul, you are now called and set apart to serve Christ. I know it looks different from Paul, right? But you are to serve nonetheless. You serve to glorify God. How? We serve in the church by offering gospel love to strangers. We serve in our homes when we raise children and constantly point them to our Savior, Jesus. We serve God by telling our neighbors about the gospel. We serve our spouse by living out the gospel in such a manner where we put our spouse's needs before our own. Yes, it is hard, but that's how we serve and glorify God with our lives. Yes, the gospel radically transforms a person. And we want to continue to live in the free grace offered to us through Jesus. Why? What Paul just said in verse 24. For God's glory. 